bringing more positivity to your day and bringing more positivity to your life. It's Lifestyle with Leanna Tan, brought to you by Bella Nicole Mental Health Services on KID News Radio 106.3 and 92.1. Welcome to the last episode in our summer survival series. I'm really sad it's ending because I have had so much fun learning all of these wilderness survival tips, uh, but I am happy because I've got a great guest to wrap it up. Justin Daly is a wilderness survival teacher over at Idaho State University, and he covers a wide variety of subjects, including environmental ethics, first aid tips, and shelter building, which are all things that we're going to be covering today. So welcome, Justin. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I appreciate you having me today. Yeah, of course. Tell me a little bit about uh, some of the experiences that you've had out in the wilderness. We just got back from working down in Dinosaur National Monument on the Gates of Lador with a five-day whitewater rafting trip with a bunch of uh, uh, veterans and uh, uh, really, really neat opportunity to get out and uh, explore some Colorado and Utah backcountry in uh, a neat river setting. So Wow. You seem like you've done so many things. Where did this passion for the wilderness come from and where did your skill set you know so much that you're obviously able to teach these college students all about it how do you know so much about wilderness survival well um just so many years working in the industry i've been here at the outdoor adventure center for 22 years and then also had spent some time uh working for uh pack company uh in my earlier days and so just extensive time, um, you know, playing outside, um, learning the skills, and then actually working on formalized instruction with different organizations from uh, groups like the National Outdoor Leadership School or the American Mountain Guides Association uh, or various whitewater programs. And so just always trying to continue exposing myself to new outdoor activities and different uh um, different clinics, um, different certifications, and, and and just love being outside. Well, a lot of people are hitting the outdoors right now, especially because it's warm outside, and it's just a time that people have maybe a little bit more time with their families, and so they're, they're hitting the outdoors, um, and I think that that's awesome, but I also think that we need to be responsible when we hit the outdoors, and so that's something that you kind of teach is how to be responsible and take care of our environment as we go out into nature. So, what are some things that we can do as we as we hit the outdoors? Well, I, I think it's really, really important for individuals um, to understand that we're having a massive impact on our different recreation areas and that they really should do a great job of helping to minimize some of that impact. One of the resources that they could use is to jump online and go to lnt.org, um, which is uh, Leave No Trace, which is an outdoor ethic. Lots of great information there for them to take a look at. Um, and they can even take an awareness course. They could take a trainer course or look to sign up for some master educator courses there. And they will talk about seven principles of leave no trace. And that's one of the things that we adhere to in all of our programming at Idaho State University. Um, one of the most important things is their principle number one, which is to plan ahead and prepare and that's really where we encourage a lot of folks to spend some time learning about the areas they're going to go recreate in, learning what resources are there, um, and making sure that they're appropriately aligning their activity um, with, you know, the number of people and um, 
just the resources that are there. Plus, that aspect of getting ready for a trip can be so much fun. You know, so many people are so social media oriented or like to spend time at their computer. And it can be really, really gratifying to sit down and research an area and kind of live out a little bit of your experience and learning about the place you're going to go ever before going there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you get there, you'll be that much more prepared and um, ready to protect that area that you love to recreate in. Do you, ha- do you know the other principles of the LNT, Leave No Trace? Oh, absolutely. Um, the second principle is travel and camp on durable surfaces. And the whole concept there is we really want to concentrate impact versus affecting these various areas that are more susceptible to damage if we walk on them or camp on them. So we want to affect the areas that we've already affected, and we want to just keep concentrating our impact there. Um, Number three is dispose of waste properly. And as we go out and recreate, as we plan ahead and prepare, we might find that certain areas don't have resources to help us deal with waste while we're out there. And so we need to be prepared to do that no matter what environment we're in. And that includes maybe carrying out all the trash or everything we take with us. Um, It might also include dealing with things like solid human waste, whether that's appropriately buried or whether that's something that we pack out in some environments. One of the worst things to do is go into a camping area and find out that you walk down by the creek or something in the bushes and find tons of toilet paper and human waste just kind of sitting there. It can really, really take a neat area and um, kind of make it not so fun to be at. Right. Um, Principle number four, leave what you find. One of the reasons we go out there is to see neat things, whether it's rocks, whether it's plants, whether it's artifacts that exist. And if we take or pick or collect those things, it becomes not such a neat area anymore. And it's important to leave those for others to experience them in the way that you are able to experience them. Um, The next principle, minimizing campfire impacts. Um, Again, we can have such a large impact by going in, starting campfires. Um, One is they can sometimes get out of control, especially when we have environmental conditions like right now. It can be a massive, massively devastating thing in an area. Also, as we have campfires in certain areas time and time again we just really deplete the resources we leave ash we char rocks and so a lot of times we encourage folks to if they are going to have a campfire have an appropriately small campfire versus a big bonfire um, or consider using other things like maybe battery powered lanterns or little lights or um, just simply sit out and stargaze and help avoid that impact altogether while being out there the sixth principle is respecting wildlife. And that, uh, you know, we encourage folks just to avoid certain areas when animals are in sensitive time periods. Maybe when we have deer that have new fawns out, we avoid those areas. Or we avoid wintering grounds when animals might get forced away from feed and up into deep snowpack. Or avoid certain areas when animals are in the rut. Um, We also respect wildlife by controlling phyto, 
when we're out on a hike in the backcountry because a lot of times Fido will take off and enthusiastically chase those animals, <laughs> uh, run off and get lost, but also kind of cause a, a huge amount of stress to those animals and displace them from areas where they need to be to be successful. Mm-hmm. And the final principle, uh, principle number seven, is being considerate of other visitors. Um, It's busy out there, and we need to share and play nice and get along. Or um, part of sometimes being considerate is to seek out areas where you can have um, your own private area and avoiding areas of high impact and concentration. I love it. Uh, That is great. Those seven tips will really help us to be able to help take care of our environment. And it's not only important to take care of the environment when we're outdoors, but also to learn how to take care of ourselves when we're out and about, of course. And that's what we're getting into next. We're talking first aid tips when we come back on Lifestyle with Leanna Tan, brought to you by Bella Nicole Mental Health Services. Showing you a better way of living. Welcome back to Lifestyle with Leanna Tan, brought to you by Bella Nicole Mental Health Services on KID News Radio 106.3 and 92.1. Welcome back to the last episode in our Summer Survival Series. I'm here with Wilderness Survival Instructor Justin Daly. He just shared with us how to keep our environment safe and protected when we're outdoors. And now... We're going to learn how to keep ourselves safe. You know, it can be really scary if you're out in the wilderness or even just, you know, out and about on a trip and to be away from our modern conveniences, you know, doctors, pharmacies, hospitals, even, of course, Google. (laughs) Sometimes we don't have access to that and that is our save all, right? So it's important to learn first aid and some survival skills before we go out. So let's just jump right in. Uh, Justin, you say that survival kits and first aid kits are a little bit different and I don't know the difference, but can you can you kind of walk me through that? You know, our our first aid kit is usually something that's commercially made and then ultimately enhanced that is to provide us medical support, where the modern survival kit is something that is more designed to help us in the event that we end up having to stay out longer than expected. And usually in a modern survival situation, we're looking at just trying to support ourselves in a 72-hour situation. And the reason is, is statistically, when somebody gets disoriented, lost, um, out in the wilderness, um, pretty typically the situation is resolved within 72 hours. Um, If it goes longer than that, unfortunately, the outcome is usually less than desirable. And, And so our goal is to support somebody that duration of time where they can get assistance from someone like search and rescue. What kind of things go into this survival kit? I feel like it would be different if you had an adult versus a kid. They might need different things. So how do you adapt that? Well, I I have a pretty unique perspective on talking about survival kits. And and a lot of that comes from 22 years of teaching survival courses. And in my early years, I would take all of these inventories from different survival books. And we actually went through and did a data analysis on what all of these survival kits included. And we came up with this inventory from like 50 different survival kits um, and, and put them in a spreadsheet and came up with what we deemed as the perfect survival kit. And then we taught this survival kit to our classes and said, you need to take all these inventory items. Then what happened? is I would find that our participants, when I'd see them later in the field, 
wouldn't have those kits with them. I'd say, well, where is all this stuff we taught that you need to be out here? And they said, oh, I was too heavy. I left it behind. (laughs) And I said, well, there's a disconnect there. Um, If these individuals won't carry this stuff, even though we've learned about it, it doesn't work. Yeah. Then I learned about this youth survival kit. It's really, really simple. So for kids, the idea is simple. First of all, you get them a garbage bag. And the ideal ones are the really, really heavy ones, the orange ones, like you would use on a trash pickup Mm. for the highway department. Mm -hmm. And you could take this and you put a little slit in the top where the head goes through and a little slit for the arms, and they wear it like a poncho. We also like to give them the little glow sticks. Those are the little things that you snap and they glow. And when they're out playing, when they're camping and they're doing night games, we give them those and we let them run around and they become familiar with it. Um, That way they have a light source. And if they're ever lost, they've activated that and they can see. It also works as a passive signal. So they're out there, they're lost, and search and rescue that will look for a child at night can see that. We also give a child a whistle. And it doesn't really require much formal training. And if you don't believe me, give a bunch of kids whistles and stand back, and you'll see that they're quite conditioned to blow the whistles. And so really simple for a survival kit for kids, we give them those things, a garbage sack or maybe a small poncho in a bag, a glow stick and a whistle, and we let them play with it and get used to it. And we tell them if they ever get separated from us, to simply put the garbage sack on, sit and blow the whistle, and activate their glow mm, stick. I like that. That's very simple. And Very about, simple. So then adults will have a little bit more stuff. What, what kind of things would you add to an adult? Well, I would change it a little bit. First of all, I find kid, or adults aren't that much more responsible than kids in survival <laughs> situations. And so I try to keep it pretty simple. So with adults, again, the garbage bag's not a bad idea. The difference is with adults, I tell them not to pre-slit the back. That way, they can generally use it when they're at a trailhead to pick up trash. Um, In the event they get disoriented, they can go ahead and put slits in it. But 99% of the time, the trash bag's going to be used to pick up trash. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a robust tool. You could also buy one of the prepackaged little ponchos, but I find the really cheap ones are, well, really cheap. Mm -hmm. Um, The garbage bags seem to work better. In lieu of a glow stick, why not a quality headlamp with a a spare battery? Okay. Um, Works really nice for an adult. Again, the whistle, hard to beat. It's a great active signal that carries sound a long ways, and so I still encourage them to have a whistle. And then the final thing is some type of fire ignition source, like a lighter or matches and a fire starter. Okay. And that's an incredibly simple survival kit that adults should have with them all the time. And I find in my survival classes, if they will carry at least those minimum items, they will have a terrible night out if they're lost but they'll survive. Yeah, that is great. And kind of narrowing it down to the essentials. Well, again, about essentials, what about first aid? If you're away from the doctor, away from the pharmacies, and you got to kind of uh, take care of your own wounds or injuries, which are very likely to happen, what, what do you bring? Well, first of all, I like to encourage folks to start with a commercially made first aid kit. 
the companies go out, they do a lot of research on what you need. They buy those small individual items and they pack them in a cool, sturdy case that's convenient. Mm. So go to your local sporting goods store, find a kit that's a starting kit for the length of time that you're going to be out there and the number of people you're going to be with. And that's how all those manufacturers will label those kits. Next, take that kit and customize it to you. And that includes putting things like medications that are over-the-counter that you like to use or prescription medications for yourself. It includes putting things that are very um, important to you, like maybe if you wear contacts, an old used pair of contacts goes in there. But you make it yours. You think about the things that you need. Mm -hmm. I also like to look at statistical probabilities of accidents and say, if I'm doing this activity, the common injuries we see are these. An example would be if I'm a mountain biker, pretty commonly if we crash, we get forearm injuries or we get abrasions on our hands or we might have a head injury. And so I put items in my first aid kits that are very, very um, uh, designed to support those common injuries we see. Um, then I think the other next really important part of a first aid kit is getting some formalized training. And so taking an appropriate first aid course, a wilderness first aid, a wilderness first responder, or a wilderness EMT from one of the certifying organizations to get trained on how to use this stuff and how to improvise other pieces of equipment in the backcountry to provide medical care. Mm. I love it. I'm so impressed with your knowledge and I'm so grateful for you sharing because I think we all need to hear these tips and make sure our friends and family hear them too because you never know when they'll come and use even if you're not in the wilderness you may be in a sticky situation and knowing you know what to pack or have with you can never hurt but if you are stuck in the wilderness well there's probably going to be a lot more going on that you need uh, than a first aid kit. So I'm going to ask Justin how to build a shelter in our next segment here on Lifestyle with Leanna Tan brought to you by Bella Nicole Mental Health Services. We're back with Leanna Tan and ways to improve your everyday lifestyle. Brought to you by Bella Nicole Mental Health Services on KID News Radio 1063 and 921. We're wrapping up the Summer Survival Series, and I'm with Wilderness Survival Instructor Justin Daly. And how I heard about Justin is that my brother-in-law actually took his class over at Idaho State University and went on this winter survival trip a few months ago. And it, it sounded so intense. I saw pictures. I heard stories. It looked really cool. I think it was like negative 15 or something like that outside. And they were um, sleeping in snow structures that they built. And I was like, oh my goodness, who even knows how to do that? And I thought it was a really important skill to learn and so impressive and interesting that I really had to connect with Justin, learn how they did it and what other tips he has for us uh, if we ever get stuck in the elements. So I wanted to ask that to you, Justin, uh, about shelter building in different conditions. I know probably um, there are different principles, whether you're stuck in the cold or in the heat. So can you tell us about that? Most certainly. Um, I can talk about uh, a few different strategies for shelter building. And one of the things we do here at Idaho State University in our survival curriculums, are we teach a couple of different classes. We teach a backcountry survival class and we teach a winter survival class. And the reason we teach the two are the shelters are so vastly different right. relative to the 
time of year and the available resources that we have. The first thing we do is in our backcountry course, we focus on what we call debris shelters. We build some type of a framework um, with some type of branches, um, i.e. a building, and then ultimately cover it with all kinds of debris that makes for insulation. Mm. Um, And in our course, I would say selection of site is one of the very key things. In real estate, they say location, location, (laughs) location. Um, And and again, um, building a shelter in the backcountry, it's the same thing. It's real estate. It's location, location, location. (laughs) Free rent, though. (laughs) (laughs) And so I encourage individuals, as they're building a survival shelter, first of all, to be just kind of situationally aware and spend a little time after they become disoriented looking around for an appropriate place to build a shelter versus starting right where you're standing. And in our debris shelter, we need to be able to put some, you know, sticks in, in various orientations. And there's lots of ways of going about that. Um, the gist is we make a small framework that we can get in. Uh, again, this isn't a camping structure that we're going to stand up in. It's going to be a small structure we can just kind of barely crawl into. And then we want to get lots of insulating material uh, leaves on there, grasses on there, things that are going to help guard the wind, um, keep out precipitation, and uh, help trap our body heat inside as we build these shelters. In our class, things that I have learned over the years, number one, building shelters is an immense amount of work. And students have to spend far more hours building a shelter than they would have ever thought, especially to get one that's effective against wind or um, inclement weather like snow or rain. The other thing that's really, really important is we generally have to cut a lot of branches or small trees down in order to facilitate building a nice shelter. And so having a great saw is paramount. And we've learned over the years through our classes that they want to buy a really nice quality pruning saw that folds. Um, Things like some of the wire saws we've historically learned are terrible. Um, They are absolutely ineffective at building a full shelter. Or some of the saws that have kind of chainsaw teeth and things like that, again, pretty ineffective. So a really nice quality folding pruning saw is something that I keep in my pack with me all the time when I'm in the backcountry, both in the summer and in the winter months. The other thing that I've learned in shelter building is it's really, really difficult and takes a lot of calories. And so one of the strategies I've learned is to carry an expedited shelter. Uh, a small little tarp tent that weighs a pound or two that just goes in my pack. And that way, if I get disoriented within minutes, I can just quickly set up that little tarp shelter and crawl in and forego all the physical effort of building a shelter after I'm disoriented in the backcountry. The winter time, um, the shelters, the students always say after they build their shelters in the snow, they say they are far more effective than our summer shelters. They do a great job of protecting us from heat loss, from the wind, from snow. They're just so neat. In our class, we teach building a wide variety of shelters. Um, That way, when people 
are lost, um, they're able to work with different snow conditions wherever they're at. And the key things there are, again, we want a real quality folding pruning saw to be able to put some wood structures in some of the, the shelters we might have, and then also to collect firewood. And the other thing in the wintertime that's incredibly important for us is to have a quality snow shovel. Um, avalanche type in nature, um, really good durability, and we use those for moving immense amount of snow um, to either dig out something like a snow cave or to pile up snow to hollow out a Quincy or to make blocks for something like an igloo. And so to have a really nice snow saw or a, a snow shovel is super important in that environment. So I do want to hear, have you ever had a scary experience with somebody <laughs> not being able to build a shelter or getting too cold or, or I guess maybe too hot or, or being subject to the elements where it was a dangerous situation? Uh, unfortunately, throughout my many years of recreating, um, I have put myself in some situations at times that uh, were less than ideal and uh, have ended up spending the night well above 12,000 feet, wow. um, sleeping in a, a little crevasse in between a, a rock wall and uh, a big snow drift uh, up at altitude in the mountains, uh, huddling a partner, um, trying to climb into our small backpacks for warmth, really? and uh, you know, spending the night um, cuddling and hugging all night and um, engaging in the mental exercise of watching my watch and breaking the night into five-minute increments. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And you were crawling into your your backpack? Well, yeah, trying to keep feet from, you know, the important part was hopefully making it through the night. And, uh, and then as the sun comes up, you want to be warm enough that you can still walk. And so you're trying really hard to protect your feet from a freezing cold injury like frostbite and also protecting your hands, too, knowing that you've got to get back down the mountain. And, and so just trying to kind of preserve those basic things for the morning. Um, otherwise, if you, you know, did make it through the night and your feet were frostbitten and you couldn't climb down the mountain. Well, I do remember my brother-in-law who went on this trip with you. He said it, that was one of the most painful things was just losing that feeling of, of fingers and toes, which I'm sure goes pretty quick. So what are some tips to keep those uh, working if, if you have to build a shelter or you have to survive the night? Yeah, first of all, we just try to stay dry the best of our ability. We also use things like skin-to-skin um, -skin rewarming. So if my hands or feet are getting too cold, um, they get placed on maybe the stomach of my partners that are out there and use their body's core temperature to start warming up those appendages. I love hearing these specifics. I'm like feeling cold already, just like listening to this. But it's great to hear what you need to pack in and, and how to prepare to make these shelters out in any conditions. And when we come back, I want to hear specifically how we actually make them now with these tools that we bring when we return on Lifestyle with Leanna Tan, brought to you by Bella Nicole Mental Health Services. We're back with Leanna Tan and ways to improve your everyday lifestyle. Brought to you by Bella Nicole Mental Health Services on KID News Radio 1063 and 921.
We have just a little bit more time with wilderness survival expert and instructor Justin Daly, and I just had to continue talking to him about how to make these shelters because uh, that's one of the things that he teaches in his wilderness survival classes is how to build shelters when you are stuck in the wilderness and you are subject to all of these elements. So in the last segment, we heard about the different uh, things you need to do to prepare and bring with you in order to make these shelters. And now I want to hear how you actually do it. So let's jump into that, Justin. Uh, I guess let's first talk about if you are kind of backcountry and it's more summer or, you know, it's not quite like a snowy, snowy environment. Let's talk about that. How do you make a shelter in that type of environment? So if I were to build a debris shelter in a warmer environment, the way I would start, again, is finding an appropriate location that had the resources I need and that's guarded uh, from things like wind. Next, I would take a quality folding saw, a pruning saw, and I would want to find a a tree that has maybe a little fork in it that's three to four feet off the ground. And from there, I would want to find a dead main beam. And I'm probably talking about something that's 10 to 12 feet in length. And I'd like to find something that's dead. If I use something that's green, as I pile other branches on it, it will flex. But if it's been dead, um, then it maintains that structure. I would either lay that through the crook of the tree, or if I had some string, I would lash it to it about three or four feet in height. And so now I've got a tree that's standing up and a main beam that's kind of diagonaling down to the ground from three to four feet in height down to the ground. And from there, I would take my pruning saw and harvest small branches and trees that I could lay on this and make a tent-type shape out of the sticks and get enough of a framework there that it will ultimately support all kinds of debris that I could find. And this would be grass, this would be leaves, this would be other sticks. Ideally, we're probably talking about a foot of insulation to help make it more wind tight and then also so it'll start to shed water or keep the snow from coming through and provide that insulating layer as you're laying in there and your body's radiating heat, it'll trap that heat. Wow. You say using a dead branch or log or something, is that dangerous if you're cold and you have to create a fire near your shelter? Is that going to like catch fire more easily? No, nah, it's just it's just going to be your one main beam. The rest of it the rest of it is going to be green debris. Okay. Um But a person, any time that they're in a survival situation, needs to be mindful of using things like fire. And is there a way to do that if you are stuck without a saw? Like if you weren't planning on being in the wilderness and you didn't have a saw, can you break things or are you just looking for fallen things? Yeah, you would just hopefully be in an environment where those resources were available. If not, you might have to continue traveling and looking a little bit. But as you find those things, yeah, if there's enough around, you most certainly could just gather those things. That's awesome. Well, what if you are in a very snowy area where there isn't a whole lot of like logs or things you can build with and you really just have snow? What do you do then? Ooh, you know, one of my favorite shelters, um, and this would be great for like different youth groups that are going out where they have a number of individuals they're going to be building shelters for. It's called a snow mound, and, and these are just dynamite. 
what we do is we take a pretty sizable tarp and we set it out on the snow. And this would be like a youth group or a scout group going out for an outing. They probably have all kinds of different backpacks and sleeping bags and things that the group has brought. And you'd make a nice kind of pyramid pile on the center of this tarp. Then you would fold the edges up, covering most of the gear, and then you would take another tarp, place it over the top of all this, and very meticulously tuck the tarp top down underneath everything. Hmm. Then usually our style point is to place a bunch of smaller items in one area that we're going to be making a door, and we attach a string to it. That way it's real easy to tunnel in and find it. The next thing we do is we provide every participant with a shovel and we bury the gear. And we (laughs) bury it so at the very top, there's about a foot of snow that's up there. And just by picking up the snow and throwing it into place, um, it ultimately creates some heat in that snow uh, and causes it to stick together. And we'll give it about 30 minutes to an hour after we throw our last bit of snow up there. And then we're able to tunnel in where that string is, separate the tarp, and we're able to then extract those small items and then start pulling out the bigger packs and the bigger items, and then ultimately the tarp. And it makes this neat, neat igloo-type formation with minimal work because we used all that equipment we had to create that interior space. And then we just simply go in, kind of finish making the inside look a little nice, uh, make sure we have an elevated platform to sleep on. And that can keep you warm because I know when my brother did this, he said he didn't even sleep in a sleeping bag. Like, is that going to keep you safe enough in the wilderness that you you can survive in snow? Well, the, the neat thing about these is when we go into this snow shelter and we're in around this freezing snow, it's going to be around 32 degrees, which sounds terrible until we go outside at night (laughs) in that winter environment. And it's maybe zero or negative negative five. That's a huge difference. If you had to be outside at zero versus 32 degrees, that 32 degrees inside is huge gain, especially when we get out of the wind. Right. Uh, So usually pretty pleasant when we get in there and we put some type of insulating layer down to sit on, whether that's something like some pine boughs or whether we're using some sleeping mats to get us up off the snow. You get a few warm bodies in there, and it starts making them a pretty pleasant temperature to hang out in and sleep in. I love that. Thank you so much for being so generous with your knowledge. I mean, you might just be saving lives right now, if not just helping people have safer and more enjoyable trips this summer in nature. So thank you so much for your time. And thank you for listening to another episode of Lifestyle with Leanna Tan. You can catch all the recaps on our Instagram page and also download the podcast and listen to all past episodes. Catch you next time on another episode of Lifestyle with Leanna Tan brought to you by Bella Nicole Mental Health Services.